confess it, but things worked out over the years, and today I proudly confess that I am a Bible language and history nerd, and you're going to find that out this morning, so I, I apologize in advance for being a nerd about this, but I will try to make it as fun as possible, I promise. All right. uh, thank you for your grace. Uh, so you guys have been going through Psalms this summer, and I should have confirmed this, but you're probably in Psalm 9 today. I really hope that's true. Okay, fantastic. It's going to be good then. Um, Psalm 9 is fascinating, not just because of its content, but also because of its style. That it, it, The writer is doing some things with the actual style of Psalm 9 that help communicate kind of the conflict he's going through. And we're going to get into that a little bit. Psalm 9 is also interesting because it's kind of tricky, right? When you start off reading it, it looks like one thing, but by the end, it looks like something very different. I think it actually engages us at a deeper level than we might expect. So I'm excited to be here. We're going to look at Psalm 9. Before that, I'm going to pray again. Um, Father, thank you so much that we could be here together, that we can worship as your people, um, that we can share the love you have for us with one another that we can open up your word, and that we can learn more about you. Uh, please speak through me. Please let this time be a blessing. And in your son's name, amen. Okay, so before we jump into the psalm, I want to talk about the structure. Because, again, there's weird things going on here that are really cool for me. Uh, first off, Psalm 9 is called an acrostic psalm, which means it's an alphabet poem. So if we did this in English... First line would start with A, then the next line would start with B, and then C, and we'd work through the whole alphabet, and that's what Psalm 9 is going to do. Um, alphabet poems are fairly common, actually, in the book of Psalms, right? Not only is it a way for ancient Hebrews to say, hey, look at me, I'm pretty awesome because I know the alphabet, but it's also a way for people to remember, actually, the psalm, right? Because, you know, the first line starts with A, okay, so then there's a little Q. Um, psalm 9 is not the most famous acrostic one. There's actually one that's very famous, an alphabet poem in the Bible. Does anyone have an idea what it might be? 119, yes. And 119 is like an uber acrostic, right? Not only is it freaking long, but it's like every section of eight verses all have the same letter, right? So the first eight start with Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The next one is Bait, and then Gim, and Dawn, all the way through. So Psalm 9 isn't as cool as 119 in that way. But it is cool in its own little unique way. All right, so in 19, or in 9, sorry, not nine, we're done with 119 forever. Psalm 9, it's an acrostic where you have the alphabet in every second verse. So verse 1, Aleph, verse 3, Bait, verse 5, Gima, it goes all the way through. Okay, the next cool thing, though, about Psalm 9 is that it only goes through half the alphabet. Because what you find is when you read Psalm 10, it actually starts up the rest of it. So at some point in the past, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 were actually one psalm, and then they got split for various reasons, right? But when we read through Psalm 9, we have to know that when we end in verse 20, we're only halfway through, right? So we're going to pause, and you're going to see the resolution next week. The last cool thing about what the author is doing in Psalm 9 is that he uses the alphabet and this is weird, to actually show when he's in conflict. So Psalm 9 starts off, and he actually skips a letter in the alphabet right off at the beginning. It goes like A, B, D. And you're like, what about C? And that should give us a hint that there's something going on here in Psalm 9 that isn't normal, right? Something's going on with the psalmist. And then later, spoil a little bit of Psalm 10, he's going to start off again with the letter L, 
essentially, but then he's going to like fall to pieces, and the alphabet just disappears, and you're like, what's going on? Like, is this guy okay? And then eventually his focus comes back to God, and he finishes the rest of the alphabet, and you get to Z. Anyway, so the Hebrew Bible does some amazing, really cool things with its style. But what's important for us today is to know that when we end in verse 20, we're only halfway through. So next week, you're going to see how it actually resolves itself. All right, so that's the background. That's the structure of Psalm 9. Let's look at the psalm itself. Verse 0. For the director of music, to the tune of the death of the sun, a psalm of David. Now, most of us, we just skip over this, right? It's just some musical thing. It's fine. I'm just going to get to verse 1. About 200 years ago, there was a shift where we started reading the Psalms more as like the history of Israel or of David and some songs that have like a historical context and whatnot. And so we start assuming that things like a director or the death of the sun, that these were just musical notes, right, for whoever's going to sing it. Um, before that, though, for about 1,800 years in the church, Psalms was actually seen not as a book of historical songs, but as songs looking forward to the future, where there is a David-like king who is going to come and who is going to establish God's kingdom on earth, where there would be peace and justice and righteousness and love and all these things that we're hoping for. And so things like the, the director, actually, was seen as like this con- victorious conqueror who was returning to the city. Right? And so the psalm was dedicated to this guy. And then the death of the son would actually be the theme that you're supposed to be thinking about. And then a psalm of David, and this one's a little tricky because even in English, of David can mean a bunch of different things, right? So it could actually mean this psalm was written by David himself. But as you get later into the psalms, it becomes a little trickier. And you start to realize that of David might just be talking that this psalm is about David, or it concerns something about the life of David, or even it's looking forward to the descendant of David who was to come, this Messiah. Now, I... Smart people are on all sides of this, so you can disagree with me. I tend to lead toward the latter one, and I'll bring it up a little bit in the end, so hold on to it. Okay, the psalm proper, verses 1 and 2, opens with this. It says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. And it's just based off this beginning, it looks like the psalmist is in a good place, right? He's thanking God. He's evangelizing, I guess. He's you know, enjoying relationship with God. And he's, he's praising. He's worshiping him. And we might think to ourselves, man, I wish I could be like this guy. Like, he seems to be in a great place. Why is my faith so bad? Why am I not seeing God's praise? You know, all these things. And so, you know, we might be a little jealous just at the offset. Yet, when we look at the first two verses also, it, it kind of gives us a clue that maybe this psalm is like a bunch of the other psalms in the book of Psalms, the psalms a lot, um, that it's a psalm of praise or it's a psalm of conf- or a thanksgiving, right? And so we would expect to, for him to tell us why he's praising God or he's thankful. And we seem to get that in verses 3 through 8. So let's look at those ones. It says, My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness, and he judges the nations with equity. So, 
the psalmist, this guy, it could be David, uh, praises God for two things, right? That God has given him security and safety from his enemies in the past because he was done wrong by them and God uh, upheld his right, his cause, right? And the second one that he praises God for is that God is this righteous king and judge, right? That God is in control and that he does what's right. And he sees this in something that happened in his past. Now, when you look at the kind of the example he gives of his enemies turning back and stumbling and whatnot, it reminded me of um, when I was younger because I have a bunch of brothers. And for whatever reason, um, we would do things to each other and we'd be chasing each other around and wanting to do other things to them. Uh, so, well, say for example, I was the one being chased wrongly, for example. And so you're running through the house, right? You turn a corner and you find mom. You cling to your mother because that's safety. And then your brother's like chugging along behind you, turns down the corner, sees mom, is like, you know, stops, eyes get big, and he tries to run away, but, you know, she catches him and she spanks him, you know, appropriately because my brothers always deserve the spankings as a, when you are. They were awful. They were awful. And I was an angel. Um... <clears throat> Yet, like, the, the judgment of this guy's enemies is pretty extreme. It's like your mother, like, kicks them out of the house, like, burns their birth records and, like, photoshops all the family photos. You know, like, okay, is this okay? <laughs> um, Psalmist says there's two, I think there's two reasons that we can look at. One, that what God does to these people is just, right? There's no question in the mind of the psalmist that uprooting their cities, like, blotting out their memory was the right thing to do, even though it seems really harsh for us today. The second thing, though, is to look at it from the perspective of the psalmist, right? Because what God has given the psalmist through judgment is this sense of peace and security. He no longer has to be afraid of them. And in fact, he's even removed kind of like the physical reminders of his enemies. Their cities are gone. Yet he's also removed even the emotional reminder like, of, that, that would cause pain, like their names are forgotten. Um, I was thinking earlier, and I did hear that some people here were Harry Potter fans, so I feel okay talking about Harry Potter a little bit. Because um, in Harry Potter, there's this villain, right, who in the past did awful things, and just the name, his name, brings up so much panic and terror that they have to call him, like, he who must not be named, right? And it's kind of like that in the sense, but God, like, wiped out their names, right? There's no longer anything for this guy to fear. He's completely and utterly safe. And of course, he is this way, once again, because that God is a righteous ruler and judge, right? And so he recognizes this in the past. And we move forward. Verse 9 says this through 14. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing the praises of the Lord and throne in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion, and there rejoice in your salvation. All right. So the psalm starts off praising God. Right? He looks back to his past where God delivered him from his enemies, where he gave this perfect security and peace. And then he establishes that God is this, he's in control, and he, he judges people rightly. And yet, now he's turning his focus, right, from the judgment to God's heart, right? Because he's, he he's especially interested in the fact that God cares for those people who are afflicted, right? That God is a refuge for the people who are in trouble, 
And it's interesting because we tend to think of judgment today as something negative, right? We hear judgment and we get a little nervous. And yet for the psalmist, what we're finding is that judgment is a, is a source of security. It, it, it's a source of comfort for him, right? And even connects God being this righteous ruler to God being a refuge for those who are in need. And throughout, and you know, that God would care about those who are afflicted or oppressed or in need shouldn't be anything surprising to us. Because when we look at throughout the law, there's traditionally three groups of people that God especially cares for. And you see this over and over and over again. And it's the widow, the fatherless, and the foreigner, right? And in the Bible, if you do anything to one of these three people and God, they call out to God against you, like, you are in trouble. Like, because God is especially attentive to those three. And in, mod- in our modern language or our modern understanding, those three people might be someone like the single mother or the unloved child or the immigrant, right? That God has a special care for them because in that society, right, they had the least rights. Like it was, they were the most easily oppressed and taken advantage of. And then when we get to the, to the prophets, like Isaiah, one of the common judgments against Jerusalem is that they failed to take care of these people. They failed to take care of the oppressed. And actually, they used them and abused them and neglected them so that they could fulfill their own desires. Right? And so when Jerusalem is destroyed by Babylon, one of the main reasons, along with Israel or Judah worshiping idols, was the fact that they forgot to take care of those who were oppressed. So this has always been a source of God's um, concern. Interestingly, once Jerusalem is destroyed by, Bab- or by Babylon, the only people left in the land who are spared are the poorest of the poor. So God finally gives them security. What's also kind of unique is the word afflicted here. And that in Hebrew, it literally means those who are being crushed. Right? It's like the weight of injustice and evil is weighing down upon them so much that they're just being ground into the dirt. Right? And the fact that God is one who avenges blood here means that they're not just being crushed, but they're actually being killed, that they're being murdered. And you're looking at something like systematic persecution, right? They're, they're in trouble, right? Nothing could really be worse for them at this point. And what we find out, though, is that the psalmist is actually one of these people, right? Because he prays to God, asking him to see those who are persecuting him, that he, God would rescue him from, from dying, Right? So he's among those people who are being persecuted and oppressed and crushed. Right? And so while it looked like at the beginning that this was going to be a happy psalm about God being awesome and praising God and, and whatnot, all of a sudden we're getting a sense that this is actually a desperate prayer. Right? That the psalmist is coming from a place of pain and fear and despair. And all he's holding on to is these three things. That God is a righteous ruler and judge. He's in control. That God cares about the people who are being oppressed, and that God is faithful to the ones who actually seek him. So we move on, 15 through 20. It says, the nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by their work of their hands. Haggai Selah. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forget God, but God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. Arise, Lord, do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know they are only mortal. Selah. So after praying for deliverance, for safety, for rescue from his enemies, He then turns back to judgment, right? Because judgment, again, is a source of consolation for him in this time. 
What's interesting here is, though, is that he seems to, to find God's justice just in kind of the natural order of things. That when you do evil, evil tends to come back on you. Um, something like I had a, a youth pastor who used to say bitterness was like mixing poison for someone and then drinking it yourself. Right? There's a sense of almost like a self-destructive tendency in, in wickedness or in evil. Um, so as much as people you know, do injustice, the idea that the psalmist is trying to say is that rarely do they have a happy ending. What's interesting, though, is that when we get to Psalm 10, this very statement is going to bother him, right? Because he's going to look around and say, that doesn't look like the natural order thing. So the, the wicked people are, like, rich. They're, they seem happy. They have lots of kids. Like, what's going on? But that's for next week. So after this, he, we get this, like, weird Hebrew phrase called Hagion Selah. And a Selah, whenever you read it, it's meant that you're supposed to take a pause, right? You take a deep breath reflect what is the psalmist saying. This Haggaiian type thing is, remember this is poetry to music, it's like he, you have the guitar and you're just playing and you're thinking like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Um, and so oftentimes, though, I think today we read this and we think, oh, I'm supposed to take a pause, which we should, it's a good idea. But the more you look at Psalm 9 and kind of like this desperate situation this guy's in, it's almost more like he's taking this for himself. He needs it. He's just trying to hold things together. Right? Because he and his people are, are being persecuted, they're oppressed, they're dying, they're in need of God to come along and judge and provide them peace and safety and security, and he's not there yet. Right? God hasn't shown up yet, and so he's just trying to hold it together. And so when he comes out of this kind of meditation, right, he again comes back to judgment. Right? Those who are wicked, they're going to go down to the grave because they forget God, but God's not going to forget the needy, and you know, they're always going to have hope. Um, it's actually, this, this verse is actually really kind of a beautiful example of another Hebrew type of poetry. Um, one of the best ways I was just, uh, heard Hebrew poetry described was it's like a rhyming of ideas, right? Whereas in English, we tend to rhyme sounds, right? My name is Sky, I cannot fly, don't let me try because I'll die, something like that. I didn't say it was always good. Um, I came up with that very quickly. Uh, what we have here, though, is kind of this rhyming of ideas, but it's like mirrored between a couple lines. It's called a chiasm. So in the very first line, we got those, uh, the wicked are going to be destroyed, right? They're going to go down to the grave because they, they forget God. But then those two things are then flipped so that we have God does not forget, you know, the needy. And the last one, and the hope is not destroyed. So it's like destroyed, forget, not forget, not destroyed. Anyway, another example of how the Bible communicates truth beautifully. All right, so any end, as he ends this psalm, he talks again about, he, well, he asks God to please bring judgment, right? Don't let my enemies become strong, right? Terrify them. Remind them that they're only people. And then Selah, we can just, just kind of move on. But when you think about it, what he's actually saying is, the wicked are winning, right? And they seem unstoppable, and they're unafraid as they go about their business, and so his people, they're being oppressed, and right now it seems like that is never going to end because the war is being lost, right? And the enemy's stronger, it seems, than ever. And then again, he has to take a breath, Selah. So if we look at Psalm 9 as a whole, right? It starts off really cheery. He's reflecting back on when God provided judgment, gave him security, but then he enters into his current situation where he's lacking that security. He's in trouble. He's in pain. He's hurting. His people are persecuted and dying. 
And in this time, he's holding on to three truths, right, that he's spoken, that God is this righteous king and judge, right? So wickedness is not going to continue forever. Evil will be destroyed eventually. And also that God has a heart and a special concern for those who are being oppressed and afflicted and crushed by evil. And then the last truth, again, is that God is faithful to those who are going to seek him. And so he prays from these three truths. As one of the oppressed, he knows he can ask God for deliverance. As someone who's seeking God, he knows that God will respond. And of course, as someone beset by evil, he knows that God will judge evil one day. Now, I th- there's a few questions. There's many questions we could ask about Psalm 9. There's a few questions I think it brings up. The first is when we are being crushed, right, or when we are being oppressed and afflicted and hurt by others, like where do we put our hope? Where is the source of what confidence we have in a situation when it seems like there is no hope? Right? And again, throughout the psalm, we keep seeing the writer rely on one thing, right, who God is, who God has revealed himself to be, right? And so there are times for us today, right, when it seems like everything around us is telling us, whether it's other people or our circumstances, that God either doesn't exist or that God doesn't care. Um, a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a teenager, and they were saying that they have a friend who is saying, you know, I believe in the devil, but I can't believe in God, because she looks around and she just sees evil, right? And she doesn't have that hope. You know, and for me even, like, it seems like my faith is always at war with my feelings, right? There are times when I just, I don't feel God's presence or I don't feel God's love. And so I have to cling simply to who God has revealed himself to be. I love old dead Christians, sometimes more than living Christians. And one, nah, you think I'm joking. I'm, well, kind of, um, anyway, one of my favorites is this German pastor from the 16th century named Martin Luther. And one of the things that he would say over and over and over again was that the importance of the external truth of God's word. And what he meant is that it's important that truth is not something inside of us. That truth is something outside that when we're in times of trouble and times of doubt, we can look to, right? And so for me, when I'm in these times of doubt, it's especially important that I go to God's word, that I recognize I'm probably not feeling, I don't see everything correctly, right? My sense of reality is skewed for whatever reason, and yet the Bible tells me what is true, and I have to hold on to that in these times. And I think this is what the psalmist is doing here. He knows who God has revealed himself to be, that he cares about the oppressed, that he's righteous, that he's in charge, that he's faithful to those who seek him. I think a second question we need to ask then is, do we ask God to save us because we are in relationship with him or because we just want him to fix something, right? And when you look at throughout Psalm 9, despite how desperate the guy seems, he's always rooting um, what he's asking God in his relationship with God, right? Because he, he starts out praising God. He reflects back on a time when God was working in his life and saved him. And when he does ask God to save him in verse 14, right, his reasons are interesting. One, that he's going to declare the praises of God in the gates of Jerusalem, which the gates of the city are the most public place. So eventually he's going to go evangelize. And it's like, you know, if you have a friend who helps you out, like for the next couple of weeks, your every conversation is like, do you know about Mike? Do you know what Mike did for me? Isn't Mike awesome? You should know Mike. It's kind of like that. But then also that he's going to rejoice in God's salvation. It's the idea that he wants to enjoy relationship with God after God has saved him. 
And I think today, often, we, we have this feeling that God is obligated to save us, right? Because we've prayed a prayer, we tied the tithe, you know, whatever it is. And if God doesn't help us in the way we want or the way or when we want or how we want, right, we begin to doubt him, right? He was a tool. And now we're like, is this the right tool for things? And we start looking for other options, right? And again, it's important that even in the time of desperation that this guy is seeing, he's always rooting his relationship with God in a relationship, right? Not as a tool, but as a person. Third thing I think we should be asking after Psalm 9 is... If God is so concerned with the oppressed and the needy, how do we treat and view them, right? right if he wants justice to be done to them, right, are we accurately communicating God's heart as his people to them, right? Is this church a community of hope for those who are depressed, a place of peace for those who are worried, a refuge for those who are wrong, a source of love for those who are unloved? And do we continue the wrongs done to them, right, to the needy and the afflicted? Are we seeking justice and restoration for them, right? Because, again, this is an important part of God's heart throughout the Bible. And so are we accurately reflecting it? Now, in ending here, I want to try and bring us back a little bit to the beginning, right? Because remember, Psalm 9 is only half a psalm, right? You're going to find the rest of it in Psalm 10. So we don't really know how it ends yet. Instead, what we, we're leaving it in this place of desperation and pain where he's just simply trying to hold things together as he's trying to hold on to these truths of who God is. What's interesting, and I love how honest the Bible is, is that at the beginning of Psalm 10, he's just going to fall apart, right? He's not going to be able to hold it together. It's so real and honest, and, well, you guys will get that next week. One last thing. Again, going, I warned you about being nerdy. The superscription, right? That little verse zero that we talked about at the beginning. You know, it talks about potentially this victorious conqueror, something about the death of the son, of David, man, whatever. What if, and I do mean what if, because again, smart people, all sides of the argument, whatever. If we view the Psalms like as looking forward to this coming Messiah and this coming kingdom, that this Psalm is telling us to look forward to the death of the son, of God's Son. And what if this psalm is the psalm of Good Friday, or this, the, the psalm of the disciples on the road to Emmaus fleeing Jerusalem in fear, or of the apostles hiding out, you know, the Saturday before Easter? You know, because when the darkness looked the darkest, when evil seemed unstoppable, that the wicked were going to win, and the only hope that God's people had at that time was executed on a cross and buried in a grave, what if this was the psalm for them? And yet what we see is that God showed up as one of the oppressed, for the oppressed, and died as one of them, right? And that we looked for God to come in power, and yet he came in weakness. And we looked for judgment upon our enemies, and yet what we find is that in love, God took their judgment upon himself. And what if, maybe for today, that we're supposed to look back and think about how the death of the Son, of God's Son, answers the desperation that the psalmist is feeling, and the desperation that we, too, feel today. You know, what if? Let's pray. God, thank you so much again for what you've done for us, that even in times of despair and depression, that we can rely on, on your truth, and that today we see 
how much you have done for us, that you identified as one of us, that you died as one of us for us. Please remind us of your love, of your grace this week, and bless us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.